It's a privilege to be able to uh, preach God's Word while Pastor Patrick is in India. I'm Tim Drum, the pastor of student ministries here, Uh, so I am thoroughly excited to be able to open the truth of God's Word with you this morning. What a privilege uh, we do have to do that. Well, everyone, all of us, we all want to be part of something. Uh, There are clubs and groups and parties and memberships and societies uh, all over the place for everyone to be involved in, whatever your interest might be. Why is that? It's because there are various benefits to each of these things as we jump into an organization or a, a club or a membership uh, you, you join those for a variety of reasons. Uh, you join Costco so that you can go and buy things in quantities that you will never possibly use all of. You join the gym so that you can go and get fit and healthy or pay for it every month and not go at all, which is my temptation. Kids sign up for sports, for fun and activity. They're are game clubs, book clubs, pickleball clubs, golf clubs. Get it? <laughs> makeup memberships, sports fan clubs, bunko groups, and on and on and on and on. We have this innate, built-in desire to be a part of something that is greater than us, that means something, something bigger than we are. We naturally gravitate toward being parts of these groups because they fill a need that we have in life. And this is because the Lord has created us, as Patrick has mentioned over the last few weeks, to be in relationship with other people. He created us in his image as relational beings, just as he is relational in, within the Trinity. He's created us so that we have needs that can only be met through community, through relationships, through family. And while many of our desires and wants can be fulfilled through some of the clubs and organizations that I listed, there are essential spiritual needs that can only be met by the church. They cannot be met by any other organization. There are tremendous essentials that can only be filled by the benefit of being part of a community of believers. And so this week and next, we're going to look at just two of those benefits. There are many of them. Our passage is from the book of Hebrews. You can turn there. We're going to be all over the book of Hebrews this morning. As indicated by the title, this book was written to Jewish believers. These are are those who were born and raised as Jews and came to faith in Christ and committed to following after him. The focus of the author on his Jewish audience is, is evidenced by the abundance of Old Testament quotations. There are tons of them. There, the letter of Hebrews contains more quotations from the Old Testament than any other letter in the New Testament. And we don't know exactly where these Jewish believers were originally when they received the letter, but we do know that the letter was circulated around as many of the epistles in the New Testament were. We also know from the content of the letter that these Jewish believers were facing tremendous pressure to turn away from Christ and return back to Judaism. Throughout the letter, there are wonderful lessons to be learned. 
And this morning, we're going to see a problem and solution to persevering in the faith. The problem is the danger we all face. The solution is the ministry we all have. Let's look at these two points together. First, look at the danger we all face. And this is really seen in the larger context of the entire book of Hebrews, which establishes the the need for the solution to this danger. The book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is absolutely greater than all other. If you were going to summarize the entire book in just three words, it would be Jesus is better. Jesus is better. There's really four big chunks that you can break this letter down into where the author compares Christ to other things which vie for the attention of his audience. This is the pressure that these Jewish believers were facing. The author wants to dispel that pressure by addressing some of those temptations to what might, they might consider to be superior to Christ. So you see in chapters one and two, he addresses angels. In chapters three and four, he addresses Moses. In five through seven, the priests, and eight through 10, sacrifices. Let's look at each of those. In one and two, he addresses angels. The author strategically makes each of these comparisons because of the unbiblical beliefs of Judaism. Many different ideas were taught elevating angels to a higher status than we really have biblical evidence for. Some thought angels acted as counselors to the Lord and that God would not operate or do anything without first consulting with the angels. They also believed that there are various tasks assigned to the angels, like keeping the stars in motion and, and going where they're supposed to. We don't have evidence for these. There is one task we know the angels were responsible for in Scripture. They took part with God in ordaining the law when it was given to Moses. This is seen in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, 51 through 53. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You see this again in Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? It, is, it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of, of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So the Jews held the angels in such high esteem because they had an important role with the law, but the author of Hebrews is seeking to elevate Christ to his rightful place in the minds of these Jewish believers. The angels may have been a part of ordaining the law, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. They may have helped in delivering God's word, but Jesus is the word made flesh. Look at chapter 1 to see some of the comparison between angels and Christ, verses 5 through 13. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? The rhetorical answer is, well, none of them. He says that to Jesus. And when he, brings, uh, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? 
The angels are going to worship Christ and it is God who ultimately gives them any power that they have. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will become like an old, an old garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Over and over, the author uses these Old Testament quotations to point to the reality that, hey, from the beginning, Christ has always been superior to the angels. See this even throughout the Old Testament before you even get to Jesus' birth in the New Testament. Next, chapters three and four, Christ is shown to be supreme over Moses. Throughout the history of Judaism, there's, there are these pillars of faith, these men who were, were stood out as, as figureheads of Judaism, men like Abraham, like Israel, like David, but Moses was seen as the greatest of these men in Judaism. Listen to how MacArthur describes their view of Moses. He says, Moses was esteemed by the Jews far above any other Jew who ever lived. God miraculously protected him as a baby, personally provided for his burial. Between those two points of his life are miracle after miracle after miracle. He was the man to whom God spoke face to face. He had seen the very glory of God and, in fact, even had this glory reflected on his own face for a brief while. He was the one who led Israel out of Egypt. The Old Testament commandments and rituals were their supreme priorities, and to them, Moses and the law were synonymous. Was Moses a great man of God? Absolutely. But Jesus is far superior to any leader who has ever led anyone. And that's the point in this section. Chapter three, verses five and six says, now Moses was faithful in the house, in all his house, as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Moses was faithful to be sure, but Christ was faithful over the entire house of God, and we are the house of God. Every believer is under his faithful care. Next, in five through seven, the author compares Christ with the priests. The role of the priest was to mediate between God and the people and to offer sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people. From a human perspective, being the high priest was the greatest rank or status you could achieve as an Israelite. To the, the draw to have a, a physical person that you could go and talk to as a representative of God would have surely been comforting. Yet Christ is the great high priest who lived in perfection, is now the mediator between us and God. We no longer need an earthly priest to go to because we have direct access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. He is superior. Then eight through 10, the author addresses sacrifices. 
sacrifices didn't do away with the sins of the people, but served as a constant reminder of the seriousness of their sin and the picture of their need for ultimate deliverance from sin, which the sacrifices couldn't offer. These sacrifices needed to be made regularly. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 10 make it clear how much more superior Christ is to sacrifices. It says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Christ is the superior sacrifice. He is greater than the sacrificial system because he is the final sacrifice. The problem facing the Jewish believers, the reason for which the letter of Hebrews was written was because they were in danger of returning to Judaism. Because the, the pressures of persecution and the, the draw of some of those comforts. In Judaism, I have, I have the law of Moses that I can follow and I, I can feel good about myself. I can feel like I'm, I'm taking part in my salvation. I can be in control a little bit. In Judaism, there's a physical mediator I can, I can go and speak to face to face. It's hard not being able to see Jesus. In Judaism, there's this physical representation of the lamb being slaughtered for my sin that I can see with my eyes. But perhaps most appealing... If I return to Judaism, I don't have to worry about people trying to kill me anymore. Numerous pressures here from all around for them to turn from Christ back to Judaism. And all of these issues dethrone Christ as most superior. They reject the gospel and turn to a hopeless system for salvation and this is why our author strategically throughout the book places great warnings for those who might be tempted to turn away from the gospel to show them the, 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 what, what will take place if they do turn from Christ. In chapter two, verses one and two, you see there's a great penalty for those who reject truth. 3.12 calls believers to ensure that they don't fall away Chapter six, verse six explains that those who fall away and reject Christ they, for the rest of their lives, they will not be renewed. Chapter 10, verse 26 through 31, describes the severity of judgment those will face who turn away from Christ. These Jewish believers faced a great danger the danger to be lured away from Christ by something that had been deceived and deemed as more superior, as better. The fact is we face that exact same danger as well, maybe not to return to Judaism, but we face this danger. It's not the danger they all faced. It's the danger that we all face church has been facing this danger of turning away from the gospel for millennia. There's a whole host of worldly wonders that deceitfully draw our desires away from Christ with the promise that they are better. 
Every time you choose sin over righteousness, it is choosing something that you believe is better than Christ. Every time you choose sin, it's a rejection of the truth of the entire book of Hebrews, pointing to the absolute supremacy of Christ over all things. Jesus is better, and if we truly believed that in our heart, we wouldn't sin nearly as much as we do. These subtle pressures of the world toward the the better things are just like the temptations that these Jewish believers were facing in the first century. Every one of those is a call for you to return back to your former manner of life and ignore the gospel that saved you. But we're not to turn, return to our former manner of life. Rather, Ephesians 4 calls us to lay it aside. Verse 22 says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted according to the lusts of deceit. What are those lusts of deceit? Those are those fleshly lies within your heart that Jeremiah 17.9 says is deceitfully wicked and desperately sick. Your deceitful desires still cling to you and long for you to believe that sin is better, sin is more fulfilling, sin is more superior to Christ. You've surely felt, felt that pull. What are we to do? You, like I, may have often felt like Paul does in Romans 7, where he longs to do what's right, but keeps doing what's wrong. The things that he wants to do, he doesn't do. The things he doesn't want to do, he ends up doing. Anyone ever felt that way? Who will set me free from the body of this death? He cries out. And then triumphantly, he declares, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Through Christ, we have been set free from the power of sin and death. We no longer have to be enslaved to sin, and we can choose righteousness because of the gospel, but beloved, we often don't. We often turn a blind eye to the gospel so we can grab hold of sin. So what are we to do? What are we to do? The author of Hebrews has devoted the entire book to this problem that is ultimately making other things more superior to Christ. His ultimate concern, though, and you see this repeated over and over, as we'll see, his ultimate concern was that those who 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 do this might eventually find themselves rejecting Christ altogether and going another way. Saw it in some of those warning passages a moment ago. How do we ensure perseverance in the faith? We could go around the room. We all probably know someone who once thought was a faithful believer and now has completely rejected Christ. How do we ensure that we will not likewise go astray and follow other things we deem to be superior to Christ because of the deceitfulness of our own wicked hearts? The author of Hebrews tells us how in our passage this morning, if you looked at your bulletin, I did pick a specific text. This was all just introduction. 
So my time officially starts now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The solution to the danger that we have, that, that we all face, the solution is the ministry that we all have. The ministry that we all have. Look now at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. We'll pay particular attention to verses 24 and 25. He says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, Christ has saved us, and now we have direct access to God through Jesus, our mediator. Verse 20, by the new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, he sacrificed himself for us once for all instead of those regular ongoing sacrifices which were insufficient Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, not one of those sinful priests who was a man who mediated between us and God, but a a perfect priest over the house of God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with Pure water, that's the work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, let, uh, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day draw near. All of the potential temptations to dethrone Christ and make something else superior that the author of Hebrews has mentioned throughout the book are summarized in this passage. And then there is a call to faithfulness within the community of believers around you. What are we to do? How are we to persevere? The answer, according to Hebrews, is a commitment to the local community of believers around you. This is why we have such a high view of membership here at EBC. We need the help and encouragement of one another in order to persevere in the faith. Look a little closer at those last two verses, verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That first phrase is easy to overlook. It seems insignificant to get to the, the, what we feel like is the meat. It says, let us Consider. This is actually the main verb of verses 24 and 25. It is to give careful consideration to, to think on something intently. It's noticing, observing, contemplating, thinking. Often believers will fail to be encouraged, an encouraging influence toward Christ to one another because they haven't really even thought about it. It's just not a thought that crosses your mind. How can I be encouraging to those around me to live more like Christ? How can I do that? This is the Philippians 2 mindset. Verses 3 and 4 explain, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard or think about one another is more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Humility of mind is going to drive you to look outwardly at others and how you can be a blessing to them. 
Now, the problem that you have is you're far too often focused on yourself, right? Consumed, your, your thoughts are so consumed with what you want and with what you need and with what your desires are that you fail to even consider how you could stimulate one another to love and good deeds. My thoughts are too consumed with myself. I don't have mental space in there for you. The word translated stimulate here refers to stirring up emotions. And this can be used in a positive or negative way. Uh, In Acts 15, you actually see that it's translated sharp disagreement, referring to when Paul and Barnabas parted ways. Now, our passage uses it in more of a a positive light, but this encouraging one another to love and good deeds is sometimes going to include confrontation of one another out of love. What we want to see in the lives of others is the promotion of love and good deeds. One commentary says this, put your mind to work to find ways to provoke in the good sense of the word each other to increase your expressions of love that result in the doing of noble works. Love is the sum of what we are called to as believers. Christ summarized the entirety of the law in loving God and loving others. So the greatest benefit that we can encourage in other believers is this love, a stirring up of love within them for God and for those around. And when that love is spurred on, that's going to overflow in good deeds in their lives. In doing this, we're going to help them hold fast to the confession seen in verse 23. This is accomplished as we get together with one another, when we spend time with one another. So as someone starts to go astray a little bit, we're like, hey, buddy, come on, back this way. There to help one another. MacArthur explains the writer is telling them that one of the best ways to hold fast to the things of God, the real things of God that are found only in the new covenant of Jesus Christ is to be in fellowship in the fellowship of his people where they could love and be loved, serve and be served. The the problem arises as we see in this passage with the Jewish believers that they were frequently absent from regular gatherings. Verse 25 explains that it had become a habit for some of them to forsake gathering together. That word forsake carries with it such negativity it's, it's abandonment. It is desertion. It's not just missing a meeting. It's not just skipping a Sunday. It's abandonment to the detriment of those left behind. When believers forsake gathering together for mutual stirring up uh, toward love, it is at the expense of the rest of the body. I want to be clear, this is not just showing up for church on Sunday. It's how this passage is often used. That's not merely what it's talking about. This is talking about intentional involvement in the community of believers around you on a regular basis. We saw when Patrick preached Acts chapter 2 two weeks ago that they were gathering together day by day. That Each day they were getting together for the word and for prayer and fellowship with one another. 
Now, the sad reality is that too many believers find Sunday morning and other church activities to be obligations that are, that are foisted upon their already busy calendars. Someone can be present and yet in practice still be forsaking the assembly. You've maybe heard or thought before, I'd be able to get so much done if I just didn't have to be at church on Sunday. Or I can't be part of a midweek home discipleship group. My schedule is way too busy for that. I just don't have time. If that's your thought process about being a part of the body of Christ, then you don't understand what it means to be part of the body of Christ. As a believer, it's not optional to be involved with the community of believers around you. It is necessary, and not just necessary, but it should be the desire of your heart to be with God's people so that you can be sharpened and you can be a blessing and sharpen others as well. One commentary puts it this way, to spur other believers forward in the Christian life, followers of Christ must meet together. Some of the readers of Hebrews were neglecting to meet together for worship and this limited their ability to give and receive encouragement toward good works. Christians who meet together with the aim of promoting godliness and love for one another can be remarkably successful in their ventures. Regular fellowship with believers is an essential ingredient in Christian growth. I couldn't agree with that more. Another commentator explains as Christian individuals, responsibilities, obligations, claims, and duties come to us. As members of Christian communities, our fellow members have claims upon us, and we have claims upon them. All human relationship in, relationships involve mutual responsibilities. God purposes to carry on his redeeming and sanctifying work in small circles by the piety, the gracious works, and hallowing influence of individuals, and in larger circles by the piety, devotion, zeal, and aggressive activity of churches." Believers are not to forsake assembling together of the community of believers around us. But these Jewish believers were making a habit of it. Jay Adams says, no wonder they were becoming discouraged and in danger of drifting. They were removing themselves, secluding themselves. Listen, isolation is the fertile soil of apostasy. If you want to see your faith dwindle, and fizzle out, then withdraw yourself from the local community of believers. And like I mentioned earlier, just because you are present doesn't mean that you are involved in community. You can be here and still be just as isolated spiritually as those who are sitting at home. And when you see this is such a necessity, you can't help but ask, why is it that believers withdraw? Why do they do this to begin with? And there's a variety of reasons that could be given, misplaced priorities, laziness, foolishness, not wanting sin to be exposed. 
I can give you one, I think, that drives a lot of people to withdraw. And it's that you can be really difficult to be around sometimes. Can we be honest? Let's all be honest with ourselves. We're not always the most gracious. We all tend to have sinful attitudes toward others. We can all be unkind and respond poorly and treat one another poorly rather than being loving and encouraging as we're called to be. Being hurt by the church is one of the number one reasons given by people who once attended church regularly and now no longer do. I spoke to a woman actually two days ago who grew up in the church uh, but hasn't been in years because of the, the legalism, the overbearing nature of the church, the harshness of the people's treatment. I encouraged her to come here to meet a, a body of loving, faithful believers who care for one another, are unified in the gospel. I like all of you, even if you are a little difficult sometimes. I want to take a second uh, to address those of you who are not in this room, um, those of you at home watching on a screen, and my question would be, why aren't you here? And before you get all defensive and upset, close the email window you just opened and hear me out. I understand that some of you legitimately cannot make it here physically. I recognize that. I recognize that some of you may be sick and you're watching from home this week. Thank you for not coming and getting all of us sick. Uh, but some of you may be fully capable of being here. Some of you have just decided to, to not be here. Maybe you've decided it's easier to just live stream at home, got used to it during COVID and have not returned. You may be fully capable of showing up and being in fellowship and participating in community, but for some reason you've decided to live stream instead, and you need to know we love you, and we miss you, and we need you here for our sake and for your own sake. The author of Hebrews calls this out as a demonstration of how not to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You, you can't accomplish this call to love and good deeds and encouraging love and good deeds if you're forsaking and abandoning the regular gathering together. He then contrasts this with how you can stir one another up. He says, encouraging one another. The word could also be translated exhort. It is to strongly urge or appeal. This is the outworking of stirring one another up. There are going to be practical conversations of living life for Christ. This ensures your perseverance in the faith because you have a, a whole body of believers around you to call you out if you start making bad choices. This is a consistent theme throughout Hebrews as a solution to the dangers we all face. Throughout the book, you find those warning passages that we saw earlier about not rejecting Christ, not falling away from Christ. 
You also find throughout the book, often close to those warning passages, the consistent call to be part of the community of believers around you for your perseverance. Look at chapter three, verses 12 and 13. It says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's the warning. He says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The purpose of encouraging one another, you see the so that in that passage, the purpose of encouraging one another day after day is so that the deceitfulness of sin does not harden your heart. This is that deceitfulness again of believing something else is superior to Christ. You need believers around you day after day to encourage you in faithfulness. Chapter six, verses nine through 12, after describing the judgment for those who fall away, he says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget the work and, and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. You see the community there? And we desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Continue to show that same diligence in community until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's describing faithfulness within the community of the church. When believers show this diligence in ministering to one another, they they realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Arm in arm, we run as fast as we can toward Christ, and when one of us stumbles and falls, you've got a whole host of people around you to pick you up and dust you off, and come on, let's keep, keep going. Christ is coming. The book of Hebrews makes a direct connection between your perseverance in the faith until the end and your consistent involvement in the body of Christ. This is why he says we're to encourage each other all the more as we see the day draw near. This is a reference to the day of Christ when he will come and mankind will stand before him in judgment. And with that in mind, we need to encourage each other all the more to run after Christ. Follow Christ, remain faithful, pursue him, turn from sin, go, 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 run after Christ. Don't stop, don't fall away, love the Lord and love one another. We need this community. Listen to what Al Mohler says about this passage. He says, we cannot have confidence and full assurance of faith apart from the church. We cannot endure in isolation. Each Christian desperately needs the body of believers for encouragement to obtain assurance. We need continual reminding from other saints. Those who neglect assembling together cut themselves off from the very means whereby Christ feeds, assures, and protects his people. Christians should be doing everything within their power to meet together.
MacArthur agrees with this, saying the only place where we can remain steadfast until he returns is with his people. Now, this doesn't mean that we're never going to miss a gathering, but that when we do, our hearts long to be with God's people. We're so prone to forget the gospel in our day-to-day lives and to run to other things. We need the fellowship and encouragement of the community of believers around us to remind us of the truths of the gospel over and over and over when we're tempted to forget. Remember, Christ is better. Christ is better. This is the message message we must constantly preach to each other. This is one of the greatest benefits of community, your perseverance in the faith until the end. Next week, we'll look at another benefit of community from Galatians 6.2, where we're called to bear one another's burdens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is better. He's better than anything we could possibly imagine. And Lord, forgive us for the times that we have thought otherwise. Forgive us for the times that we've neglected your people. Lord, we confess that we know that we've caused damage to the body and to our own souls in the neglect of your church. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to long to be with one another. Instill within us a passionate desire to be with your people. Lord, if that is waning in anyone in this room, Lord, I pray that you would ignite a love for your people within them. I thank you for the community that you have placed us in, that we can remain steadfast and endure until the end. And Lord, we long for that day when we will stand before you. Come, Lord Jesus. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.